You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dye, and um, man, this one's been a little bit overdue. I feel I feel kind of bad. I've got Frank on the line here, and um, this is take two. We had tried to record this podcast on the way back from a consultation in the um, the end of January, and lo and behold, we had some technical difficulties. I did not have an extra spare SD card to be able to record, and we could not format that one car and we're driving back it's late at night and so this one's been put off but despite the fact that it's been put off man this is a pretty powerful podcast wouldn't you say frank oh yeah 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 i i completely agree we were i think this would be a great one uh to get out there because of the importance of crp and the for a wildlife conservation the importance that it has played the new farm bill is coming out and what mm-hmm. CRP is a part, but also, um, you know, the future and, and how landowners that have CRP or plan to have CRP, how they can improve what is really a potential great wildlife policy. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there's a lot of um, very, very positive things that have come out of CRP. And, um, but that's not to say that there still can't be improvements. And some people might be like, wait, well, CRP was like the latest and greatest thing, the best thing since sliced bread. And, and again, it's been it's been fantastic and very critical to preserving and enhancing wildlife populations, various species across the country. But um, there are things that are, or are ways that it can be improved. And um, while spending time working a property together, except at the end of January, we experienced um, and encountered a lot of CRP. Most of the properties that we were on during that day were 
CRP heavy. I mean, I would say 90 to 95% of them were grassland dominant. And we had a lot of takeaways to be able to discuss here on the podcast with ways that we can manage CRP or existing CRP fields as well as CRP contracts that are ending. How do we take it to the next level after we have this solid, solid base? So that's essentially what we want to cover today. And and there's a lot of people, Frank, I think um, maybe let's say on the East Coast who just is unfamiliar with the um, CRP program. So you're very intimate on the background, the history of the said program. And there's Again, there's a spectrum of CRP and in some areas. Um, it's not all warm season grass dominated that falls under CRP. There's there's different types of CRP plantings that could be done. Um, so if you will, kind of break down, let's say, the history of CRP so we can give the listeners and the audience um, a good understanding of, of what that's going to look like there on the landscape. Yeah, so the CRP or Conservation Reserve Program was a part of the 1985 Farm Bill. And what this program was started out as was a way for farmers to take land out of production, highly erodible land that by its by its condition, by its nature, was subject to erosion, take that out of production, put that into a some sort of permanent vegetative um, planting, and then leave for a period of 10 years, which was the contract period. And then after that, they could either renew for an additional 10 years or you know, opt out of the program and, and go back to something else. So that's when it started, was in 1985. And it was a program that was really geared for the entire nation to take advantage of. Uh, it is It is more popular in certain places, of course, more highly uh, ag, agriculture-dominated areas, row crop-dominated areas of the Midwest, so from the Dakotas down through Oklahoma, uh, west into Montana, had a lot of CRP, and um, even in the southeast had CRP, and it could be vegetative uh, herbaceous plantings, so in the, in the Midwest, there was a lot of native warm-season grasses, planted. Uh, Kansas, in fact, required that native warm season grasses must be planted as a part of their CRP. Other states didn't have that requirement. So in Missouri and a lot of the other southeastern states, tall fescue was allowed to to be planted for CRP planting. There were CRP tree planting, so you could plant certain tree species as a part of the CRP. So remember that CRP was started as as a way of of conserving soil. It was not a, a wildlife program per se. If it was, then it would have probably been more restrictive in terms of what could be planted. So probably tall fescue would not have been allowed. Uh, Kansas saw the opportunity for soil erosion and control, but also wildlife benefits and chose to require that it be native warm season grasses. So that was really important. And, and really successful, but basically it was a it was a soil co- erosion control program that sort of morphed into a, a really successful wildlife policy, depending on what um, what was planted. And the reason for that 
is you take bare crop ground or crop ground that only grew corn, soybeans, what have you, and all of a sudden you put that into usable space of early successional herbaceous habitat, wildlife populations nest, I mean, exploded in that situation because you're taking something that was non-usable and creating usable space, and wildlife really responded. Waterfowl responded great to this in the, in the prairie pothole regions. Pheasants responded phenomenally to CRP in the Dakotas and in Iowa. Um, quail responded very well in certain places. So it was a real boom for wildlife perspective. It could have been better. Certain places that planted tall fescue or loblolly pine, eh, not so great. But um, it turned out to be an overall positive for wildlife. And it's still going on today. There's still, there's not near as many acres of CRP as there once was, but there's still CRP on the landscape. That is a, a fantastic overview of the program and its original intent. And and again, that's that is this the important thing that we've talked about on a lot of podcasts is man, I I don't care if you're driving force as a white tailed deer, you're driving force as a bob white quail or you're driving force as better um water quality. We're all working together on the same team here. We can all have some really big overlap when we manage the land or, or the natural resources, we can do a lot of these different things if we if we kind of come together. And that CRP, I think, by by default, actually kind of helped do that and, and bridge some of these, um, these gaps that maybe different interest groups had. But now we're seeing, okay, look at what, look at what we've been able to do by offering um, this type of program and see farmers implement it um, and then see hunters take advantage of it. So it's been really cool to see all that happen across the country and, and the different regions. They have the different um, vegetation types, like you talked about, that will provide different things um, on the landscape based on that given region and what's specific to that region. So we were working in kind of central to central western Kansas there on this, this, these properties Um what did most of that CRP, Frank, what did that most of that look like? What was it comprised of? Well, it was mostly of sort of the big four native warm season grasses. There was big blue stem and Indian grass, of course. Uh, there was uh, little blue stem and more some more drier sites. And in, and in a couple of the newer plantings, there was a predominance of little blue stem. So kind of step back a little bit. It's, uh, when the first CRP plantings went in, it was very heavy, uh, heavily dominated by tall warm season grasses planted at a very high rate. So big blue stem and Indian grass was really popular switchgrass on some of the wetter sites. And uh, it was planted at a very high rate. So it was a very, very thick stand. Um, and, and this gentleman certainly had fields that matched that description perfectly. He had another field that was more of a newer planting so as we as we evolved in our knowledge of the effects of this warm season grass on on wildlife conservationists began to realize that too much grass was a detriment to quail and pheasants so the newer crp plantings in in kansas required um, less native warm season grass seeds per acre so a lighter planting rate and had relied heavily on little blue stem 
which tends not to get as rank and tends to form more of a clumpier growth to facilitate nesting and then broods moving around between it. So uh, we saw those two types of CRP plantings, the old school and the new school that had more little blue stem. But the factor, the, the common factor or common theme through all of those was that they were all really, really heavily grass dominated and had very little bare ground. So mm-hmm. very few forbs in the non-disturbed areas and very little bare ground. Pheasants were doing really well there in places, and a lot of that was based on his hunting strategy, but also good habitat. Um, and existing quail, crop right yeah. there adjacent to some of the CRP um, ground. Yeah, yeah. And quail were doing really good along the fringes of his property where there were some shrub plantings or some scattered shrubs, uh, but they certainly weren't using 100% of the property or even 50% of the property for that matter Sure, because of the availability of woody habitat or, or the unavailability of woody habitat, I should say. Right. No doubt. No. And that was, that was definitely a key takeaway that we were seeing quite a bit of was, was, Hey, you know, these, this species of pheasant's going to do really well throughout, throughout much of this, but, but quail, which was a large focus for this gentleman, um, the usable space that, was available was was actually pretty small like i think driving past a lot of people would have just been like wow look at that stand of crp you know there's birds in there and it's like there's birds in that at a certain time of the year it it occupied a, a certain um timing in in which that was more usable but but in a lot of those places it was so rank and so thick a quail trick wouldn't have been able to navigate through there and and even so thick, some adult quail couldn't have even gone through there or been able to fly up and out of it because it was so dense. And just driving past, again, we would have said, oh, wow, look at that. But but once you're out in the middle of it, and this is uh, why we're talking about managing plant communities, all it was was grass. Like there were, there was not much of a community. There were several species of grasses, but there was not the additional benefit of, of open ground, like you said, the forbs, the weeds that were coming up that we needed in that. So here we have a program. Here we have a lot of, let's say, glorification of what CRP has has done. Um, but But if we don't take a step back and look at it critically, though, too, we probably wouldn't have made the observations, um, you know, driving by at 50 miles an hour versus walking through this, you see a lot of different things. And you take notice of those those lacking points um, because as as no matter what species you're you're looking to promote, you have to be able to um, look at the, the said, the piece of property and evaluate what are the limiting factors, how do I improve or increase those limiting factors here on the landscape and so with that being said there's a ton of different ways to do that right frank right yeah so that this piece of property or these different pieces of property it turned out that there were there were several um several sections that we looked at had um a variety of of different landscape configurations while they were all crp the landscape around them was different and so um, it was really cool to be able to look at those and then to match kind of what the, the landowner's goals were 
with each piece of property and they were mm-hmm. all different. We couldn't have applied the same the same exact management prescription to each piece of property because they vary. And that's an important point of you need to get out and, and look at these properties, the properties that you're managing. You need to get out and walk them. Don't just have a management prescription and say, I'm going to burn this unit every three years or every or in 2022, 2024, 2026, whatever, and just stick with that right. because that may not be what you need to do. You need to walk it, and if it rained a lot the, the year before, think, oh, I need to burn this now. You know, So you've got to be adaptive that way and not just have the same prescription going forward. So that was what was cool on this is, is he had some properties that were set up beautifully for white-tailed deer hunting, and you really advised him and helped him well on that. Other properties may not have set up well for hunting as they were, but you could devise some strategies to really improve them from a hunting standpoint. We also had a variety of ways to improve the properties from a small game standpoint, primarily pheasant and quail. And most of it revolved around the establishment or the creation of early successional habitat or brood habitat. Um, and a lot of people see a CRP field and think, oh, that's great habitat because pheasants are using it or there's a few coveys of quail. But we need to step back and think about what is that grass providing? Mm-hmm. It's providing cover and, and nesting substrate, and that's it, right? That's there's right. no. It's not providing any seed value. It's not providing any really value for insects. Insects are looking for succulent green vegetation because it's got moisture in it. And most of those grasses do not really meet that. I mean, I have grasshoppers and whatnot, but, but, the, but the bugs that these critters, these small quail and small pheasant chicks are eating are coming from forbs. They're coming from succulent green vegetation that's full of water and that's attracting the bugs. Well, a field full of grass doesn't have this and it certainly doesn't provide any movement for any movement substrate for these birds because it's too rank so these grasses really are only providing one of the of the habitats of values that that these species really need and that's nesting well we got to be thinking about more than just nesting we got to be thinking about what happens when these nests hatch then what happens after the chicks get out of the nest and they are looking for food on their own, can they move around? Can they find bugs readily available? If not, well, then all the nesting that these pheasants did or these quail did was in vain because their broods die because there's no brood, brood survival potential. So you've got to think about all of that and not just look at it. Hey, that's grass. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's uh, there's no doubt about the fact that there's there's missing components there to making this crp ground way way better and and some of these parcels um as we're kind of getting into what was specifically prescribed some of these parcels were coming out of a 10-year crp contract so they had been established and they kind of run their course and you had the option as a landowner to re-enroll or change up the management um, of those units 
So we have uh, some of the properties, some of the parcels that are coming out, as well as some that are still within the CRP contract. And of course, you know there, there's things that you can and cannot do as you are uh, accepting money for enrolling in CRP for the life of that 10-year contract. Um, you have to fall within the guidelines of the management. So as we're addressing these two properties, we're going to share techniques that are able to address the limiting factors, uh, uh, both of these types of properties, whether they're coming out of CRP or while they're still enrolled, what can I do to improve that? So, um, Frank, which one do you want to tackle first? So let's take one. Let's tackle the most difficult one first. So let's tackle a situation where uh, we have CRP that we're still in the program and probably still going to be in the program for the next let's say five years sure. going, going forward so that our options are fairly limited. Right. So let's take that. Cause that's going to be the most difficult one Absolutely. To, to deal with only because um, of the restrictions placed on us by the farm service administration, which administers the CRP. Program. Yeah, absolutely. So, We've got a heavy grass dominant area. We've got five years left of the contract. We know that Forbes are limited, but we also know that um, the woody structure is limited for birds in these units. How do we address both of those? So the first thing to do would be to go and talk to the, the folks at the local FSA office, the Farm Services Administration office, the place that administers the CRP, and see what you can do. There are certain management tactics or mid-contract management that you can do. You can do some burning. You can do a little bit of ground disturbance. Uh, you can do a little bit of, of um, shrub planting, but you need to know the extent that you can do. So let's say uh, they only allow us to burn you know, 25% of our property and they only allow us to, to uh, plant a limited number of shrubs or do a limited number of, of strip disking or herbicide. Well, if that's all that we can do, uh, we still need to do that. So we still need to establish some fire lines and establish some, some burn units. We can go in and do some herbicide to kill the grass or strip disking to kill the grass where the FSA allows us. Um, But the one thing that we can do is from a woody cover perspective, if they won't allow us to plant shrubs or, or, or put in woody cover for, for quail and pheasants, one of the things that we can do is create these surrogate shrub plantings or these surrogate shrub rows, which are basically just down tree structures that we drag out into the grass. And I do this quite a bit on some of the land that I manage, uh, some of the pastures that, that lack woody cover, mm-hmm. if we'll cut down two or three trees. We'll drag them out into the middle of the field and then let them just sit there. And over and immediately they provide good woody shrubby cover for quail, but they also provide a structure for songbirds to sit on and deposit seeds that eventually hopefully will turn into blackberries or wild plum or some kind of a dogwood shrub, and we'll get a shrub planting just like that. So those are some of the things that we can do there is drag some tree structures out into it. We're not planting shrubs. We're not violating our contract. 
we can drag some tree structures out there. I think that that is a humongous point for people to be able to um, apply not only to uh, CRP, but into a wide range of other. Maybe you are managing early successional plant communities and, and you haven't, uh, or, or you've tried to plant shrubs and deer have overbrowsed them, they've knocked over cages, they have um, just caused a ruckus, let's say, in a shrub planting. You've got a failed shrub planting. Well, this is a technique that you can do and apply outside of that CRP contract. And, and the, the beauty of it is it's like I'm getting what I want and I'm not breaking the CRP contract because most likely there's probably trees if you have surrounding trees or there's eastern red cedar all across Kansas. We know, we know we've got plenty of those that need to get cut down. So why don't I, I go in, physically cut those because that's going to be recommended anyhow, and then take the tractor hook it up to um, the hitch, drive it out there, and just place it. That That is the immediate cover. For, so from like a whitetail, per, whitetail management perspective, what are some things that we do from an immediate cover? We cut down a tree, or we may hinge a tree, and it's laid over, and now there's cover there to be um, utilized and, and wildlife to be able to relate to it immediately, just like that, just by dragging it out there. So... Over time, needles may dry out, fall out, and now you have a big old cedar skeleton. Or, or I remember distinctly on one of the properties, there were some um, uh, clusters of hackberries. Not hackberry structure. It's a very um, kind of rigid tree structure, and those canopies can get drug out there. It's going to take a while for those to break down, and and several years. Maybe maybe you do it right after a fire too from the you know mid-contract management and you don't have to have fire back on those tree structures for another three or so years um, out there in an existing CRP field or, or out there in an early successional field that you've u- utilizing this technique on. By that time, there's going to be a lot of birds that have sat there and that seed it will be deposited. And, and then that canopy or that, that tree structure is like a utilization cage for those shrubs to get established. Yes, there may be deer or quail around the edges, but um, from a consumption standpoint, it's not going to be as easily accessible to allow that shrub to take um, and get a root established and begin to go up vertically through that tree structure. I think it's a fantastic idea, and it's kind of, um, it's it's basically thinking outside of that box and still getting what you need. Yeah, and, and what it does is it gives you a way to get woody cover into your CRP fields uh, immediately instead of saying, well, I've got to wait till my 10 years is up, then I can address my woody cover issue. So uh, I'll just wait. Well, if you can do this, your quail are going to utilize it. Your pheasants are going to utilize it. It may not be as perfect as a 20 by 20 plum thicket, sure. but it's certainly much better and having nothing out there and your game birds will utilize it your rabbits will utilize it deer will bed up in them um, they provide a they provide great uh, habitat component that is missing and it can be added very very quickly yeah absolutely and it's one of those things too just from a, from a hunting standpoint when typically you're you're hunting these upland birds it's later into the year during winter time and that they're closely associated with um 
woody cover. So it kind of can isolate birds, utilized as a hunting technique too, saying, Absolutely. wow, I've got, yeah. let's say, 20 shrub pockets out here or down tree structures in this wide open field. Well, where are the first places I'm going? I'm going in close proximity downwind of these structures to find the birds. Yep. Yep. It's, it's yeah. super simple. Yeah, and it, it's it's a really simple technique, and, and it kills two birds with one stone. Ha ha. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, nice and <laughs> that's a good one. Five, <laughs> getting rid of your tall trees, and then making some instant shrubby cover on the ground. So it really does work well, and I I, I use it quite a bit on on the ground that I manage. Yeah, no doubt. So so there's the um the option for someone within a contract to be able to utilize a a tree structure and create some instant woody cover for birds what about um improving forbs or herbaceous cover while you're still under crp contract yeah so again you would need to see see how much you can you can do let's say it's 25 percent. throw it out there well you can do some prescribed burning uh, and and that works well you can do some prescribed burning and then come in right after you burn and do some soil disking or wait till that grass has got six or eight inches of growth on it and hit it with a, a systemic herbicide to kill it. And so basically what we're trying to do and, and what is so counterintuitive in a lot of these cases is people think, wait a minute, I planted this grass, I've taken care of it, I've, I've nurtured it, and now you want me to kill it. That makes <laughs> zero sense, right? Right. Well, if you think of it in those terms, it doesn't. But if you think about it and you look at 160 acres, a quarter section of native grass, if you take 10 acres out and put it into Forbes, that's a drop in the bucket. You still have plenty of grass, but you're just gaining so much more because you're creating brood habitat. And that's what a lot of people, I think, struggle with is, yes, we're conditioned to finding these game birds in grass, but boy, that's a very, very small part of what they need. Um for instance, Fred Guthrie, who's a renowned quail researcher from Oklahoma and Texas, is, re, is retired. And in um, one of his books, he was at, and he wrote this sort of an essay. He said that uh, someone asked him what his recommendations for quail and CRP was. And he said, he said, quote, plant one seed of grass per 160 acres and disc it every other year. So basically, <laughs> just create a weed field, right? Yeah. And quail will, will respond. And so, um, so that's a little extreme, but he was trying to make the point is guys don't be thinking in terms of grass only. You got to have the weeds too. And he was, he was making a, he was trying to make a point a little on the extreme, but the point, I mean, I got the point pretty strongly and think when I first read that, I was like, wow, I'm thinking too much about grass and I need to be thinking in terms of Forbes too. So yeah, that absolutely. Was, uh, and so that's what we can do is, is go in there to the extent that our contract allows us is to go in and just kill some grass. And by default, we will have weeds come back where there's yeah. bare ground. There will be weeds, annual weeds that are probably not only produce forage for deer, but also canopy structure for broods to be able to maneuver in and under, as well as bring in the insects 
as well as be great options for turkeys. And there were not that many turkeys on this portion um, uh, of uh, the properties. Therefore, he was excited to know that, okay, if I create brood cover for um, pheasants and quail, I could probably increase um, or have a better chance at hens rearing poults here as well. Again, cover from a nesting standpoint was the last thing that was limited. And I think, Frank, you've shared the numbers here on the podcast in the past, but looking at um, the number of clumps of grass per acre that you guys have found as um, great or, or adequate amount of nesting cover per acre because they will typically quail are going to nest under or adjacent to clumps of warm season grasses like a small clump of uh, little blue stem or or broom sedge but what is that number so yeah so the the research comes from texas um dale rollins talks about this and their research is showing about 300 grass 300 basketball size clumps of grass per acre mm-hmm. as being more than adequate for nesting. Now that's more than what Fred Guthrie said, but you get the point that it's, it's not a solid field of warm season grass. If you think about an acre and you only have 300 clumps of basketball size, there is tons. There are tons and tons of potential spaces in there with bare grounds or weeds. So you don't need a solid grass stand for quail, most certainly. Uh, it needs to be pretty sparse, in fact. And so that's that's something to think about. And a basketball-sized clump is like a clump of little blue stem. Sure. Something volleyball, basketball size. And that's just where they can tuck a nest under. Would, would you say that warm-season grass is, is over-glorified in the upland bird world as it is for white oak trees or forested acres in the wild or in the whitetail world, hundred percent, a hundred percent, it is. Um, the reason I I pose that is for is for everyone who's listening that cares about both species is, guys, just because that one portion or or factor um, or plant community part of the equation doesn't mean just because it's good for part of the equation doesn't mean you need a a ton of it like sometimes less is more and in this case less was way more for this gentleman he did he needed less grass he had seas and acres and acres and acres and acres acres of just grass he needed less grass although grass was a key component to this he didn't he didn't need any more of it. By removing it, he was going to see much higher numbers. And it's similar to some of the research um, from a, from an illustration standpoint that we've talked about um, with Dr. Craig, Har- Craig Harper on his white oaks. You know, 40% of the, the actual white oaks on a given landscape are producing 70% of the acorns. So we can cut. We can physically go in and cut or remove like warm season grass here in this equation we can remove some and increase our production and because we're giving more space to um, other species. And so hard mast is, is going to increase by cutting some trees. And in this equation, by removing some of the grass in the different varying ways, we're going to have an increased 
most likely, and bird numbers and, and capacity to hold them throughout the summer months. And so less is way more in this equation. Yeah, and, and I can't stress that enough, is that game birds need seeds to feed on. Grass don't produce the hard seeds that these quail need. Mm-hmm. Forbs do, right? So you've got to have quail don't, don't or grass doesn't have any food value. Um, and the chicks need insects and insects are attracted to, to succulent green vegetation, which means forbs. So you got to have them if you expect to have to maximize the number of quail or pheasants or even prairie chickens. Think about prairie chickens as the ultimate grassland bird, and they are, but they have to have the same seeds and insects that quail and pheasants do in order to persist. Mm-hmm. So um, these are these forbs are so critical, so super critical. In fact, any more on my plantings of if I'm doing a quail planting where I'm taking a field that's was in crop or whatever it may be and plant it to for for quail i put in just the bare minimum of grass that i can to provide that nesting structure and a substrate to carry fire and then just suck that uh, i mean just put that sucker full of forbs and just let it go so that's that's what we're doing just because we have we have become to really gain a better understanding and how important these forbs are just for the the nesting, or excuse me, the, the brood rearing and the winter needs of these critters. So there's lots of ways to account, to uh, accomplish that now that we're outside of um, the program, the CRP contract. What what are some of the, I guess, most preferred ways? And, and I'm going to say, uh, preface this, none of these ways are wrong. None of them are um, like oh, I would never do that one. You can do them all or a combination of them. Um, they're all going to give you good results. But here, here's a list of some of the ways that you can go in and increase for production in a sea of grass. I'll let you yeah. cover some of those there, Frank. Yeah. And so a lot of it is going to be more or less labor intensive. So the, the, the tactic that you choose to employ will a lot of times depend on the amount of time that you have to do this and the amount of equipment that you have uh, and, and your um, willingness to get out and do some of these things. So if we're thinking about something that, that is l- less intensive, let's say prescribed fire, basically put in fire lines um, and then have the equipment needed in terms of drip torches and fire fighting equipment, like, um, you know, handheld, uh, or excuse me, backpack blowers or flappers or rakes or water units, and you can cover a lot of ground quickly. You can you can burn a lot of grass quickly. That's going to promote your forbs. It's going to promote bare ground. It's not going to really kill your grasses. So while your benefits are great with a prescribed fire, they're not going to be as long-lasting as, say, killing the grass outright. So fire is one of those. Uh, one of the things that I would, that I prefer is just going in and killing the grass completely and just getting rid of it. Cause it will over time creep back in, but you'll get a, a lot longer benefit. So 
the best way to do that is say go into pick pick the acreage that you want to treat preferably in a, in a sort of a random arrangement or covering as much of the of the particular field as possible uh, that would be the best i know that's sometimes hard to do from a management and, and efficiency standpoint but to sort of randomize your disturbance go out first burn the duff layer that's there so burn the grass that's there let the grass grow up about four to eight inches and then hit it with the systemic herbicide to kill it then you're going to get a flush of forbs and you're going to get a disturbance that's going to allow you to get you know three four five years maybe out of it where prescribed burn you may get one or two years of benefit depending on the the um the landscape or, or the rainfall where you're at sure and, and um, so, you don't we don't mind again killing grass because we have tons we have excess yeah, grass this is absolutely. not a this is not a bad thing this is a good thing this is what it yeah. absolutely needs and and so it, you said random kind of locations across is there a preference when it comes to um brood rearing cover that you're like i would really i would try and choose this amount of acreage in each patch to be able to do well i would love to have about 50% nesting cover, 50% brood habitat. That would be probably ultimate. And you could even get away with probably less nesting cover. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you had a 50% brood cover, 50% habitat. And, and the thing is, um, with randomizing it, then, you know, you can have nesting cover right next to brood habitat. Sure. So let's say if you've got a, a, a 160 acre field, and you burn the southeast 40, well, the birds that nest in the northwest 40 may never get down to that southeast 40 because it's too far away. So if you could plan your burns such that birds nesting anywhere on your property can find that brood habitat quickly, that would be the best. Um, so uh, that's those are a couple of things to do. So the burning and the, the herbicide, you can do some strip disking. So you can go in and disc your native grasses. That will turn up some of that root mass. You'll kill some of the roots. You'll kill some of the grass. You'll get a flush of forbs. You'll get a flush of bare ground. Um, you won't get it as, as long. You, you won't get your disturbance as long as with killing the grass with the herbicide, but you'll get it longer than with prescribed fire. But the ultimate disturbance for getting nesting cover and brood cover to be one and the same, to be randomized and to be right next to each other would be careful prescribed grazing. And that would be a, a wonderful tool because then your cattle are doing your work. They're munching the grass off. They're creating trails. They're creating bare ground. They're creating forbs because when they eat the grass, the forbs come back and it's being done across the entire piece of property not just one forty acre here or one forty acre there. They're utilizing the entire piece of ground. And because you don't have the, the contract re restrictions from CRP, you can graze it, you can have get cattle your own, but most people just would rent the grazing rights. You can you can set your own prescription to make it as, as restrictive as you want it to be. And you're getting paid for that and you're getting great wildlife benefits. It's really a great, great tool to use when you don't have those contract restrictions. Absolutely. No, that, that is uh, definitely fantastic to be able to utilize a, a 
an animal, um, to be able to gain and improve wildlife habitat. That is that is like a working farm, um, and that that's one of your top top like priorities is to um, you know try and try and make every acre as beneficial or as useful as possible to. Yeah all these different uh, competing interests. And so, um, you know, by having cattle as part of the landscape, you can definitely do that. That is that's a huge, huge win-win for um, operators who want to, to hunt quail or want to hunt upland birds. But regardless, there, there's the common theme of open ground. I need to be able to create that, utilize that uh, for for bird species to be able to be more prolific but there's so many different ways to do it you can utilize the herbicide it's got a longer um, residual impact from a for production standpoint versus just going in and um, after burning disking and damaging the the root crowns of those um, grasses and you get a great response but again it might not be as long lasting Um, but for those people who Maybe they don't like herbicide. You have the option. Maybe those people who want to make money, you have the option of of bringing in cattle. It's so very open um, to the different techniques. The result is going to be roughly the same, um, which is Forbes, which is what this place needs. But that's what I love about the ability for the, the open ground. You have options. When you have a lot of just timbered acres, um, your very your your technique and your implementation of that technique is quite a bit more um, rigid, and and here we have a lot of flexibility with that because of it being open ground, and that grass is is definitely a large resource that can be utilized, eaten, consumed, turned into beef, and heck, I like beef, so okay. why not why not um, try and utilize that for the um, overall improvement of the bird numbers. So with CRP, you can get a, a huge base or a great jump start um, and improving pasture lands and then improving wildlife as well just by utilizing the cattle. And and so when if, if someone's doing that, when we're talking about grazing plan, it's it's definitely a set window because, you know, with these grasses, there are warm season grasses. So we're not grazing them um you know, all year round, cattle is not going to be present there for the entire time. It's going to be during um, the the warm season months from probably most areas late May till mid August or so. Is that is that what oh, you yeah. would expect? Yep. Yeah. So so I do a lot of conservation grazing on the on the properties that I manage, mm-hmm. and uh, and we have seen and we've had the benefit of of being able to have quail radio collared on these areas that we are doing conservation grazing on. And, and so we're seeing the direct benefits that this grazing is having on, on our quail production brood habit broods. Um, according to our research, we're, we're, we're doing better in areas that were, that were burned and grazed. They were selecting those areas and had, and had better juvenile survival rates. So, so we were seeing some good benefits, direct evidence that showing this grazing is a great conservation tool but we're only grazing from about mid-April on some sites to or May 1st on others, just depending on the, the dynamics 
through August. Sometimes we would graze through August. Sometimes we would pull it off August 1. We've even monkeyed around and done some grazing through September on sites that were really, really heavy in mm-hmm. Indian grass. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a lot of rain and we wanted to get on top of that Indian grass. So we, you know, you, you've got some, you've got some flexibility there, but grazing during that, that warm season time when the grasses are really growing, seeing great gains on our cattle, not the cattle. We don't personally own those cattle, but we have a, a permittee or a leasee that brings cattle in and early in the season, they're gaining, you know, two to three pounds per day, averaging about two pounds one and a half to two pounds per day through the grazing season. So fantastic gains. And then during hunting season, there's no cattle. You don't have to worry about that. Um, and they've, they've really done the, the work. They've, they've, they've bore the brunt of the conservation work for you. And it's, it's really a win-win. There's some infrastructure that needs to go in, but once that is um, put in, man, you're good to go. Yeah, absolutely. That- and cattle grazing doesn't preclude you can't burn. In fact, burning with cattle actually is is a great way to to improve your the the amount of forbs you have on your area. There's there's a lot of things to do, so you, you're not handicapped by cattle really with hunting or with other management. Yeah, definitely. And and there's even another option is one that you can go in and and spray and use um, herbicide and plant additional kind of brood mixes in some of these grass dominated areas as well. We haven't, we haven't chatted about that one yet. Um, but if, if someone was to go and do a more permanent, um, uh, mixture of, of planting for birds specifically to bring in and attract insects that they could rely on, um, year after year, what would be the species of preference for you that you, that you're going to recommend Frank to someone for that? Uh, that's going to be kind of dependent on latitude of where you're at in the country uh, in terms of the amount of rain you get. But um, for the most part, uh, rag or um, excuse me, alfalfa is a great one. And people often don't think about alfalfa in terms of upland game birds. But in Kansas, alfalfa is used quite a bit in CRP to improve uh, brood conditions for pheasants and prairie chickens because alfalfa is a super great plant for attracting insects. Mm-hmm. It just, there's billions of insects that are attracted to it. It's very succulent. In fact, Kyle and I hunted a green alfalfa uh, pivot circle in Nebraska. It was nothing but alfalfa and orchard grass, but it was primarily alfalfa, as green as you could be. Um, and the prairie chickens were loving it. There was, they were in there feeding on, on insects. Um, so alfalfa is a great one. Um, I just got done planting about 1200 pounds of ragweed in our, in our brood strips this year on some of the acres that I'm, that I managed. Uh, mm-hmm. So ragweed, you can get ragweed seed and you can, you can look for it to come in after you disturb the ground or you can buy the seed and do it. But ragweed also less, but Annual espadizas are great because it attracts a ton of insects, but it also produces a ton of seed for the for the fall and winter months. So it's um, those are three that are really good. Peridovic or annual sunflower is really good. It produces a lot of insects, but it also produces a canopy. So it sort of has that that protective canopy for for quail chicks. But those are some of the those are probably my four top ones to be espadiza, annual espadiza. Uh, alfalfa ragweed and that annual sunflower absolutely not not to be mistaken for 
Cerisa lespides, oh, everyone no, no, listening. No, no. This is yeah. this is a different species. There are lots of different types of um, uh, lespides out there. So just want to make sure that everyone doesn't freak out. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a different type of um, lespides. So right. um, anyhow, so, I, I think that's all super fantastic information. Yeah. You know, and if you wanted to, if you wanted to take advantage of some government programs for pollinator plantings, mm-hmm. or you were just super interested in pollinator plantings, you can you can take advantage of some cost share that some states may have and plant a super diverse mix of wildflowers and forbs that will attract pollinators, but it will also provide great brood habitat. So mm-hmm. there there are some different things that you can do based on what your interests are. And uh, so that's the beauty with this, this brood habitat creation is you can get anywhere from, you know, Hey, I'm going to do an alfalfa interceding, or I'm going to plant a, a really showy wildflower mix, just whatever you're interested in. And you're going to get good, good results. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's why I love, I love the, uh, the differences and techniques that you can do and, and all of them will yield good results. You know, all of them come highly recommended, but it gives it gives a little bit of freedom to that landowner to say, hey, you know what, I, I, I kind of like this one or my equipment will allow me to do this one the most effectively. So I'm going to give this this a whirl and um, see see what I can do with it. So I I always love getting, um, you know, feedback and questions from landowners that we've worked with in the past. And, and Frank, it's been pretty awesome to see um let's say what what's been recommended to the landowner out there in kansas we've been getting some texts back and forth and um knowing that that work is getting done and and the success that he's seen thus far on these properties to me to me it's only fractional because i know what is missing and what is being implemented what's being done based on what was recommended it's going to make it so good. And I think that um, the future is certainly bright for that landowner to um, manage that CRP a little more freely now based on some of the contract, but now having that knowledge of what do I do? What do I, how do I make this thing better? Yeah. I, you know, when I, I saw sort of, it was really cool seeing the evolution of, of when we were talking to him about killing grass and he was, I think ready to throw us out <laughs> to him sending us texted pictures of him actually doing that. Yes. Killing the grass. Yes. That was satisfying. Um, and I, it, it was really great to see, to see this gentleman um, really get it and understand that, Hey, these game birds are more than grass. They are a whole entity that needs, that has a whole life history has a whole set of life history needs and the grass only provides for just a small portion of that, mm-hmm. and that, that they need so much more. Uh, and, and I really think his, I mean, his hunting out there right now is great in part, in part because of the habitat he's got in part because of his conservative hunting strategy. Yep. But I really think he's going to see some, some good benefits on his game birds. And then I, th- he's already killing big deer. So I, and I really think he will, he will continue that if not uh, improve that going forward. I definitely agree. And kind of to, to wrap this thing up, you know, we talk about, okay, what's missing? Well, we've got 
for, from from the game bird situation, but um, the same thing is is missing from a whitetail side of things. We don't have enough food out there. Deer aren't eating food. I mean, deer aren't eating um, grasses. That's not a food supply. So all that grass, dominating grass, those areas was just cover. And um, we were missing some of the the woody browse and that woody cover for whitetails, the pockets of shrubs, the down tree structures. They're going to relate to that just as much. And then all the annual weed production, um, they're going to do extremely well off of that. That's a missing component for whitetail deer in that same exact um, acres or, or um, property that was missing for quail. So don't think of those recommendations as just for quail and pheasants to do well, but the whitetails are going to do fantastic there. And he has killed some fantastic incredible whitetails and it's like i know what's going to happen it's only going to get better so i'm totally excited for him jacked up um because he's utilizing that knowledge now to make those impacts and he's going to do he's a go-getter that's for sure and uh love love seeing that so um any other closing thoughts there frank um no not that i can think of Uh, again thanks for Allowing this uh, platform to to really get out the small game word, get out the word that, hey, these these critters need these early successional habitats and the importance of doing that disturbance. There's quail and and are so tied to purposeful disturbance across a lot of their range. We've got to be doing that. So uh, it's great that to, to provide this platform to to get that word out. Absolutely. I appreciate your expertise for sure and uh, for being part of the Land Legacy team. Um, Not only are you and Kyle both fantastic um, managers of natural plant communities, uh, specifically for upland bird species, but you have all the knowledge in the world to be able to um, manage for the needs of whitetails and wild turkeys as well. So huge asset to um, both Adam and I and the Land Legacy team. So we appreciate you and your time and your knowledge and sharing that with us um, and to all the listeners out there. So um, appreciate that. And guys, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to uh, follow us along on social media. Turkey season is right around the corner or maybe open in your neck of the woods. So you'll be seeing some um, posts and comments and um, things coming out. Maybe some videos from us as well from past turkey hunts that we've had um, that have been recorded. And there are some really, really good ones. So be watching the YouTube channel. Um, and guys, just get out there, be safe, and have fun, enjoy um, the natural resources and what's at our fingertips. Appreciate you guys listening. If you have any questions, be sure to reach out to us through Instagram, Facebook, or go onto the website and um, submit a question through the consulting tab. But thank you guys for your time. Yep. We'll